Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to theologian and journalist Rusty Reno about how and why the strong gods are reappearing in American society and what that means for our common future. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on May 3rd, 2022 in um, increasingly warm Phoenix, Arizona. At least I am. My guest is in, in New York, Manhattan today. Uh, and I'm, that guest is, as I'm very pleased to say, Dr. R.R. Reno or Rusty Reno, as he is called by all who are fortunate enough to know him personally. Rusty is the editor of First Things Magazine the highly influential journal of religion and public life that was founded by Richard John Newhouse in 1990. If you are interested in the intersection of religion and public life at the level of ideas, and you don't subscribe to First Things, you need to change that right now. Uh, I devour every issue uh, right away when it arrives at my home, usually with a cigar in one hand and a scotch or a mezcal or some other lovely drink on the side table. It always makes for a genuinely delightful evening. Truly, that's how, this is how I consume first things, Rusty. Um, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. So there's my ad for first things. It's really the best, uh, best magazine uh, going. Uh, besides editing first things, uh, Rusty is the author of a number of books. We're going to focus today's discussion, though, on it. I think we're going to focus today's discussion on his most recent one, uh, published in 2019, which is titled Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. Rusty Reno, welcome. Oh, great to be with you, Jeremy. Thanks for that kind commendation of First Things Magazine. I heartily approve of your, your method of, of <laughs> being, <laughs> well, It's really great when it's like a Monday night and I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah it's a martini rather than a scotch in my case. All right, well... Uh, there are differences among uh, humans that are hard to hard to fathom. Actually, I love my time. <laughs> but that would be great. Um, this book came out just before the pandemic. I, I, I want to talk about it in that context to some extent as we as we go along and kind of see if you're if you're thinking about this topic. The the this big broad intellectual uh, topic changed uh, thanks to the pandemic. But um, uh, basically. Uh, you start with a little um, intellectual history, uh, uh, the burden of which is that everything changed um, uh, in, in the post-war consensus after the civilizational disasters of World War One and World War II, Nazism, all of that. Um, a, a post-war consensus developed that sort of banished the strong gods. Can we just sort of give some of that intellectual history right now? Like what that consensus was, why 1914, 1945 were key moments and what they produced? In the book, I, I, I went back, I circled back, and I looked at some of the books I read as a graduate student in the 1980s uh, that I kind of thrilled to. One was Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom, and the other is Karl Popper's Open Society and Its Enemies. And they are emblematic books of that era. 
self-consciously written to try to warn the West, to prevent the West from repeating the errors that had led to this conflagration and ideological passions and destructive war of, of that time period. And Hayek, I think, you know, the market, if we can let the market rule as much as possible, we will, we will um, we'll have peace without, without having to debate the big questions mm-hmm. that often lead people into conflict. And it's the kind of center-right position, actually, I think, uh, in the West. And then Popper's argument is we have to uh, have a much more humble approach to what we can know as true, even more skeptical. And we have to emphasize a kind of technocratic management of societies to improve people's social welfare. And I think that's been the center-left um, uh, consensus for many decades. And it's important what unifies these two is, is this notion that we should not believe things, we should not put metaphysical convictions at the center of public life. Well, I guess the way I often I give presentations on this, I say the, the underlying intuition is that if nothing is worth fighting for, then nobody will fight. Right. So it's a, it's a peace that's brought by a kind of calm and uh, low ambitions. I think this is characteristic of the liberal tradition broadly, which is to dial down the temperature of civic life. For Hobbes, the best way to get men to stop fighting about theology is to make them fear for their lives. Um, And if they focus on staying alive, then they won't focus on, you know, finer points of Christian doctrine that tore Europe apart in, in the 17th century. And then, of course, John Locke, shortly thereafter, wanted us to focus not so much on not dying as on not losing our property, <laughs> not being, right. not being uh, dispossessed. And so uh, continuation of life, uh, maintenance of property, um, you know, this, that's in these founding figures in, in the modern political tradition. And this just got amped up after 1945. For obvious reasons, that's typically yeah. the American way of interpreting the um, fascism and communism is that it's the ideological mindset that is bewitched by uh, by truth claims. So we gotta we gotta figure out a way to train people to be less bewitched, and to do that, more skeptical, more tolerant, more open-minded, and so forth. The the key word. Uh, or metaphor you use a lot in the in the book that you think binds sort of together this project or characterizes this project is loosening or weakening. Uh, how, what do you, what do you mean by that? How do you see that playing out beyond just a world of ideas? Well, I mean, weakening. The weakening is probably most familiar to listeners in the pedagogy of so-called critical thinking. So you're a young person. Now, this may have changed now because the critical thinking conceit runs all the way down into primary and secondary education. But for someone in my generation, let's put it that way, you kind of go to college with pieties. And the job of your instructor is to disabuse you of those pieties and to make you realize that they're socially conditioned. If you're a Freudian, they're conditioned by 
your childhood traumas or something like that. Right. You're a Marxist is conditioned by your your class location. If you're a historicist, Hegelian is conditioned by the historical uh, development of Western culture, and so on and so forth. You could ring the changes on this particular pedagogy, but all of those pedagogies um, are uh, pedagogies of weakening. So if, if I give a lecture and I open the lecture by saying, "Well, from a white upper middle class Western perspective," dot dot dot. I have basically taken the air out of everything I'm going to say uh, and made it much smaller than it would be if I just gave my lecture on the topic and made my argument for certain conclusions. That's the most obvious for yeah. Peter. Yeah. You know, Milton Friedman, um, he's very explicit in, in his, uh, um, his, his writings uh, about the way in which if we can – make most of our relationships ones of buying and selling market relations, then we can make life focus on utility maximization. And that's another strategy of weakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can be very passionate, don't get me wrong, right. about you know, uh, their bank accounts and, and so on. Uh, but, but it's not something that encourages people to make great heroic sacrifices. Uh, on the contrary, and Friedman thought this was a good thing, it tends to make people more coldly calculating. Um, and so that's another, that, that again, I think the economistic way of thinking is a kind of center-right strategy of weakening. The critical discourse, the postmodern mode is a typical center-left method of weakening. Is there a... Um before we sort of get, I, I, there's a lot of directions I want to go from all that, but before we get there, um, is there a causal connection in your mind between the sort of a, a, the, the rhetoric and the concepts that, asso- that are associated with loosening and weakening, uh, you know, re- dialing down the temperature, no strong loves, no strong gods, as, as we'll get to here in a bit. Is there a connection between that rhetoric, those concepts, and an actual loosening and weakening of, of yeah, you know, we have thinner communities, weaker families, uh, a, a thinner civil society. To 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 get onto the theme of this podcast, is there a causal connection there, or are they all just drawing from the same sort of wellspring? Right, it's always difficult difficult to separate the chicken from the egg. Uh, but I think, like for instance, Barack Obama, he really loved to ring the changes on the slogan uh, "Diversity is our strength." Mm-hmm. And uh, which, of course, is absurd. Uh, unity is our strength, not diversity. I mean, diversity may be a fact, but it's not a, a strength. But if you keep emphasizing it, you keep championing it, then basically the sort of things that people hold in common will, be, will, will increasingly be seen as threats, actually, to the body politic rather than the source of the body politics um, um, strength and, and uh and unity. So it's not a coincidence that over the that this that this cultural program is an economic program, a cultural program, a political program, and the post-war consensus. It's not a coincidence that this has brought us a much more fragmented uh, uh, and fractious and contentious um, society with much thinner um, civic institutions, because civic institutions. They're nourished by shared projects and shared convictions. 
So, you know, if you're, if you, if you buy the Milton Friedman line and you think the most important function is to be a utility maximizer, uh, that's something you do as an individual. Um, and so you're socialized not to see yourself as a, a member of a larger body, but rather as a, an individual entrepreneur. You're, you're, and, and so you have a lifestyle entrepreneurship, which is typical of the cultural politics of the left, a kind of self-discovering, self-invention um, that draws upon a therapeutic vocabulary that's one of empowerment. And then you've got a more narrowly economic entrepreneurship vocabulary on the right. In the, in especially both of these things kind of fused together after the end of the Cold War, when Bill Clinton said the era of big government's over, and it's going to be a kinder, gentler sort of uh, deregulatory environment. Mm-hmm. And when we get first W. Bush compassion conservatism, it's going to be a kind of kinder, kinder gentler, um, you know, culture of, of, of you know, personal self-discovery, self-invention. And, and I think that these things kind of pretty much fuse into something that goes under the label of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. But I think even at a popular level, I'm just sort of thinking about the, the case people think this is being, I don't know, overdrawn or not concrete enough. I think of, um, and this is going to be a somewhat crass thing I'm going to say here, you have to stop up the children's ears. Clay Travis, who was, it was one of the two hosts selected to replace Rush Limbaugh. So this is the conservative talk radio for the people circuit. Got famous for saying he believed in two things, the First Amendment and boobs. Uh, and that, that seems to be perfectly represent the sort of center right, uh, attitude that you're, that you're, um, talking about. So that's a loosening and weakening thing, right? You know, flesh and speech, you know, that's, that's, uh, what it's all, this sort of, um, loose freedom. That's not, we're not bound by sort of shared loves, but by sort of being able to do what we want and have fun. Through libertarian negative liberty emphasis on the right in this time period, and you get a empowerment positive liberty emphasis on the left. Uh, I mean, you know, so if you're a serious-minded person and you say we should all be free to say and do as we please, kind of libertarian thing, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that you know society puts tremendous pressure on us to say certain things to conform to avoid shame and censure. And so if you're serious about people being free to say and do as they please, you have to break down the shared social consensus, which is mm-hmm. what kind of political correctness does. It, it polices our pronouns so that we speak in, in ways that empower people to do as they please. Um, so it's, it's not, it, there, there isn't a big difference here. It seems to me it's a judgment about what's needed. Typically the, and ran libertarians say, well, you know, people should, should be strong enough to do it on their own. They shouldn't need to be empowered. A person who's liberal um, uh, on the other side has a more realistic view of human nature and recognizes most people need tremendous encouragement to be individuals. <laughs> yeah. It's paradoxical, right? Yeah. You need to have a culture of empowerment for people to do as they really please. Yeah. Uh, but that's that that that's one reason why, you know, libertarians are very clubbable in universities. Um, you can be a libertarian economist at Harvard or Princeton, and you're clubbable. But social conservatism are social conservatives are are expelled instantly yeah. because 
the social conservative says uh, there are there are limits to openness. That actually um, to live well is to be closed, as it were, around certain transcendent truths, uh, and not to infinitely entertain infinite options. Uh, and instead, to commit oneself to things that make you more truly human. Yeah. There's a, the strong, uh, those are the strong gods that you talk about in the title of your book. Um, maybe we talk about it's the metaphor. The, yeah, it's a metaphor of the nation is a strong god, family is a strong god, obviously, religion uh, is, a, is a truth is a strong god. Truth is a strong god. Love. If you look at the Google, I mean, Google will give you these uh, frequency of use for certain words. And after 1945, there's a big spike and ongoing growth in the use of the word meaning. Yeah, I noticed that you had that as a weak god. I wouldn't have thought of meaning as a weak god uh, until so I read the book. Meaning for you, meaning for me. My yeah. meaning for your meaning. Right. But you wouldn't say my truth is you've got your truth, you've got I've got my. People do say that, but that doesn't come off right. People people call you out on that, or more people will call you out on that than they will about meaning. You're right. That no inherently subjective. Yeah. I mean, right. meaning is about how it affects you. Um, so it's a, it's a subjectively tinged term and truth is a very strongly objectively tinged word. And I think if you look across any number of different, um, you know, identity is a yeah. subjective term, um, you know, person or human nature. So it's human identity, not human nature. Nature is a very objectively tinged term. I think you just look across our discourse, and I think you can see how we've pivoted towards these weakening terms and away from the ones that are strengthened. And the strong gods are, as a metaphor I use, um, Max Weber, um, you know, the famous French sociologist, one of the great founders of modern sociology, uses that metaphor to talk mm-hmm. about these strong gods. He talks about the gods um, as objects of devotion and loyalty. Right. Um, and, you know, part of the dream, a certain kind of dream, we're supposed to be true ourselves. That's a very, that's a kind right. of existentialist idea from the 50s. True to ourselves. Well, you know, nobody wants to be true to themselves. They want to be true to their idea of themselves or <laughs> right. they want to be true to their true selves right. uh, or whatever right. it might be. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, John, Pope John Paul II uh, often said that we want to give ourselves away in love. And I think that this, um, it's an Augustinian, St. Augustine, it's an anthropology drawn from the Christian tradition. It's an anthropology tree that goes back to Plato and the Greek tradition, that we're just hardwired to want to move up, to transcend ourselves. Right. To get outside ourselves and become greater than just the me. So we want to break out of our me-centered existence and, and devote ourselves to something greater than ourselves. So whatever that greater is, and it can be, a, is what I mean by that metaphor of the strong gods. Well, hold that thought. Be right back. So I, I, I think there's an ironic way in which people try to do, do that, even in an era of the weak gods. And we'll be back in just a few uh, minutes to talk more with Rusty Reno about the return of the strong gods. All 
right, we are here with my colleague, Jessica Cooper, who uh, works on the consulting team here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm good, Jeremy. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Good to talk to you today. And we're going to talk about uh, government grants, um, which I think can be very intimidating for people. People can can wonder whether they're worth it or what, um, you know, uh, if uh, what comes with getting a government grant. So why don't you tell us uh, some things that people ought to consider if they're thinking about applying for a government grant? Sure. Uh, I think that, like you said, applying for a government grant can be a bit daunting. Um, so one of the first things to consider or um, determine when deciding if you should apply for a government grant is you should determine your eligibility. Um, so if you're applying for a state grant, it's going to vary a lot based on your state. Um, but if you're applying for a federal grant, you can go to grants.gov and every available uh, grant will be listed on the website. You can filter based off of um, your organization's mission. Um, and then from there, you can go and register at sam.gov, which is the system for award management. And that'll be how you accept government money if you were awarded a grant. Um, and then in determining your eligibility, I would say, like, review the RFP really thoroughly and make sure that you can actually provide all the required information that they're asking for. RFP stands for? Uh, the request for proposal. The government put government agencies put these out there when they're sort of calling for applications. Exactly. Yeah. And the nice thing is they're very clear about what they require and um, the deadlines. So it'll tell you when it opens and when it closes and everything you need in order to complete it. Right. So determine your eligibility, number one. And by the way, you laid down some two nice little facts there. Grants.gov, SAM.gov. What's mm -hmm. another thing you should think about? Yeah, I would definitely. Um, be honest about your capacity to handle the application and the um, ongoing reporting for the grant. It requires a lot of time, both for the application and then if you're awarded a grant, the ongoing reporting usually is monthly, sometimes quarterly, um, but it, it does take a significant amount of time. And I would say you probably need um, at least one de dedicated staff person to part of their job is going to be managing that reporting. Um, and they're going to have to work with the programs people and the finance people in your organization to make sure that they have everything for those reports. Um, and then also most government grants won't cover your administrative costs. And so the time that your staff person spends re reporting on the grant is not going to be money that you can use the grant. You can't or, use that grant money to pay for that time. So there's some serious financial considerations you need to take into account when you're going for a government grant. There's uh, it's a lot harder to report on uh, more rigmarole and bureaucracy than a usual foundation grant, correct? Yeah, I, I would say that that's right. Um, for the most part, I'm sure you there's know, some private foundations. Grant. You can't build in the admin costs into the into the grant, which many foundations would expect you to do. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, now what's and what's the third thing? Yeah, so the third one kind of builds off the second point, um, which is just to ask yourself if you can really support the grant. Um, government grants typically are reimbursement based, which means you have to front the costs on your project before you actually receive any money. Um, so if you get a $1 million government grant spread out over two years, the government doesn't cut you a check for a million dollars. Every month you have to spend money towards that project. And when you submit your report, 
then the government will reimburse you. Yeah. So there's a serious cash flow consideration to take into account there as well. Exactly. Yep. Gosh, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work. The, the, the nice thing about government grants is, even though they're a bit daunting, they very clearly lay out everything that they uh, need from you. Um, and even though you have to front the money, you can typically get really large amounts of money uh, from government grants. So it's, uh, it's definitely a cost benefit. Analysis to do. That's right. Exactly. Well, thanks, Jessica. That's very helpful. Thank you, Jenny. Appreciate it. So we are back with uh, Rusty Reno, author of Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. And and we were just talking about how there is a sort of a natural desire to transcend oneself, uh, to, to, to get out of oneself and identify as something uh, larger and stronger, often or the strong gods we've been talking about, it's nation or family, uh, religion. We still have that desire, don't we? So I, I think this is why we need to get to sort of the irony here. Because uh, I can imagine a lot of people listening to us thinking, oh, we have strong gods. I mean, if, if we have deep metaphysical convictions. They're just built around keeping out the old deep metaphysical convictions, the old gods. It's just we're talking about rival gods here, not some strong gods and weak gods. What do you, and political correctness, what's sort of what I have in mind, for lack of a better term, wokeness. Uh, what, what's your response to that? Yes, I mean, uh, I've made presentations, and many people have challenged me on that point. <laughs> you, could, you could, as I said, I think in the introduction, it's not so much that they're weak gods as that they're gods of weakening. Okay. And so uh, obligatory non-judgmentalism. Right. You know, where, where if you're a young person and you are told you, you have to be inclusive, you have to be affirming. You have to be. So it's, it is a, there is a disciplinary element. Every consensus imposes discipline. So this particular consensus, though, is obligatory weakening. You're not allowed to be a spokesman for the gods of strengthening and the gods of conviction. Um, right. I think, you know, that, but things have changed again, it seems to me. Um, and if you look at the... We, we've just added in the last couple of years equity to the diversity inclusion. Right. Create the holy trinity of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Equity is a strong God, not a weak God. Justice, Justice. Yeah. is a strong God. And, um, you know, and so there is a way in which wokeness, as opposed to this earlier kind of, um, um, you know, I'm okay, you're okay. Right. Uh, obligatory inclusion. Wokeness does have an element of strengthening to it. I mean, I've got a new preface to the paperback volume, and you know, I, I, I quote Aruna Kalani, who was this uh, South uh, Indian, you know, subcontinent Indian psychologist or psychiatrist. This is what she, she says. She says she has, quote, fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step. I mean, that kind of bloodlust right. is not a, a fruit of the God of weakening, although I note that she uses there as the inclusive 
pronoun for the right. white person. Right. So <laughs> where she's paying obeisance to this weakening, we're not allowed to sort of speak in ways that categorize people as men and women. We got to leave them. kill them, murder them, but get the pronouns right. Blood, blood is is as Phil Gorski uh, wrote a book on civil religion a number of years ago, and was very anxious to keep the language of blood sacrifice. Um, that is to say that people die for our country. They shed blood for very much at arm's length because of the power of that kind of language and evoking in people this very strong sense of uh, that the stakes are of ultimate significance. And so it's not, it's interesting how blood language has returned. Um, yeah. In that, in that quote I just uh, what I just read, but in other places as well, uh, uh, Donald Trump, when he gave a speech in Warsaw, I think it was in 2018, he spoke about the sacrifices and bloodshed by the Polish patriots as they rose up against the Nazi occupiers in Warsaw while the Soviet forces stood by in the distance. And this evocation of blood, I think, was one reason that so many commentators reacted so negatively that it was a speech of, so I think somebody said it was a white nationalist speech, which is quite kind of absurd uh, on his face, but you can see what they're saying. What they're saying is Donald Trump is midwifing these very strong metaphysical urgent affirmations in order to rouse people to feelings of loyalty. And this violates the post-war code which is we're supposed to we're supposed to critique and downplay and diffuse these kinds of things so that people will be more at peace. As I said, if nothing is worth fighting for, then nobody will fight. Nothing is worth dying for, no one will die. Right. But then at the same time, it seems like just in the last couple of years, few years, that consensus is starting to morph a little bit into um uh, it, it's not a complete – would not trying to dial down the temperature everywhere, but only in the – again, the West's old strong gods, not not all strong gods. It's a, uh, just like you were just saying. No, I think, like I said, I think we're – the wheel's turning. No yeah. justice, no peace. Right. People shouting in the streets. Look, I think that the whole George Floyd business was um, – I mean, I'm, Heather McConnell has definitively shown that you're 72 – Policemen, white, uh, white policemen are 72 times more likely to be killed by a black man than the other way around. Uh, um, so so I, I think that was a kind of misguided, but the, but you have to see the impulse. Is it right. for, for something of transcendent significance? Enough already with yeah. this kind of world of global commerce, fluidity, uh, I think if I was 25 years old and I was told that, isn't it great to live in this fluid world? You'll never own anything. You'll rent everything. It just strikes me as a dystopia. Yes. No commitments, no, no, uh, no anchors. No stable uh, identity. No stable identity. So, yes, we're in a complex time. I think a lot of young people believe all that stuff. Right. But they're rebelling against it spiritually. Yeah, the strong gods. Your point really is that strong gods will return. I mean, that's the title of the book, and um, they're sort of, in a way, aren't you almost sort of um, 
there's a sense in which this project of banishing them forever was doomed to failure in, in your mind, that it just doesn't comport with human nature? No, and I think that if you look back and you look at some documents from the 1950s, whether it's the Vital Center by Arthur Schlesinger, or I focus on the Harvard uh, report on education for a free society, that the men, and they were all men, uh, of that time period who wanted to take responsibility for reconstruction of the West, envisioned a kind of balance between inherited authority and this new spirit of questioning. And not too much, not just endless openness, but then again, not uh, commanding authority. And But the, all the prestige went to openness, and so over time, that became, they gained the upper hand, and it became a kind of flesh-eating imperative. Um, and, and like I say, we get to the neoliberal moment, uh, end of the Cold War, where you get you know, dreams of uh, end of history globalism, dreams of a kind of end of history commercial frictionless world, dreams of an end of history opportunity for endless self-invention. And um, so, yes, that was unsustainable. And human nature uh, uh, returns. And I think uh, I end the book with a warning that I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a conservative Catholic social conservative, and so we need to midwife the return of gods that ennoble strong convictions and, and commanding truths that ennoble us. Because if we don't do that, then, then the ones who return will be debasing ones, as they were in the 1930s. I mean, the critique of the strong gods was fitting in a sense, but there was a mistaken assessment that the problem was that they were, is that they were strong rather than that they were perverse. And, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, you, you, you see this mistake repeated over and over again. Uh, the problem is not that people believe too strongly as they believe in the wrong sorts of things. Right, right. Whether it's supremacy or, um, or whether it's a, it's a kind of um, patriotic fervor that requires you to denigrate others. Uh, these are all perversions of other, of, of, um, of our, they, they, those things pervert uh, a very noble human capacity to be devoted um, right. to one's family. Or we all see that you could, a person can be become uh, a family is going to become clannish and uh, and and uh, patriots can become uh, narrow-minded and religious believers can become uh, dogmatic in the wrong sort of way. The solution there is not is to purify those loves rather than to denounce our capacity for love. But for instance, if you look at Plato's Socrates' dialectic in the dialogues, it's all ordered towards, you know, he's got the Athenian youth, and they, they have the conventional beliefs of the Athenian uh, polis. They have the, and Socrates points out that they're just not adequate, these beliefs. Um, so they get deconstructed, as it were, by Socrates. But that the aim of that deconstruction is to prepare them to actually affirm these truths in a purified form, uh, not to not have any convictions or beliefs. Right. I love our pedagogy at higher education. If it's not political in some sort of narrow sense, it's a typical pedagogy of just you leave, you leave young people kind of stripped without actually giving them uh, the higher truths. And, and your 
position essentially would be that this is just an unrealistic. It's not only is it an undesirable project, it's an unrealistic project as we're seeing. Like you just can only go convictionless for so long, for a generation or two, it seems like. And then convictions will come roaring back. We just can't live like that. And we see this, you know, if you people in Ukraine are not dying to defend their country so that they can become part yeah. of rules-based international order. They're dying to protect the sovereignty of their country and uh, defend their country. And that's a strong God. Yeah. Um, and, and, we, and we applaud it. We, we admire it. Um, and we, we admire people who have the courage of their convictions to stand against the, 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 the Twitter mobs. Right. Uh, and you, you, we all, I mean, I look around the American society today, freedom, freedom, freedom. Well, there is not much on offer. Uh, uh, I look at young people especially. They feel terribly talented young people with fine educations and all the advantages uh, before them feel that they can't make a single mistake. Right. Uh, and they feel like their, their freedom of action is severely limited. Uh, again, I think the reason why is because they've been deprived of these strong gods, because those are what give us firm places to stand against the current. Um, and, and so their dissatisfactions, which are, I think, manifesting themselves in certain kinds of you know, woke fads, these dissatisfactions are, um, I think, a sign of a hunger for a society that actually is, you know, ordered around um, uh, these deeper truths and not just floating in the endless sea of openness. Sorry for all those metaphors. No, it's really good. I'm, I'm trying to think of how I want to put this because you talked about how the solution is not to banish loves, not to banish all of our loves, but to purify them. Um, I think that's that's true. Um, you don't talk about the American founding in this book much, if at all, if I recall correctly. Um, that's sort of the American constitutional system. I'm trying to think about it from the, in this lens that there's sort of a realism there that it, it um, it's often misinterpreted. I would say misinterpreted as trying as a constitutional system set up to help us banish <laughs> strong gods, banish banish laws. But um, isn't there something there though? It's not. It's not. It's a political solution that realizes that there will always be strong loves and strong gods. It just tries to make it hard for any one of them to um, sort of gain total uh, domination and you know control without without it being coordinated through a lot of different checks and balances and a lot of things set up to make that hard to do. Is that a good solution still, or are you one of those people who thinks that actually that was a solution um, doomed to fail and is not a solution we should sort of try to resurrect? No, I, 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 I'm a, I think the separation of powers is a ingenious um, uh, method to check uh, the passions of man as they manifest themselves in the political realm. Um, and those passions can be base, that is to say, a lust for power for its own sake. Those passions can also be seemingly very noble, you know, which is to ensure the salvation of every single soul in the country, right. Right. you know? And I think that our, our liberal traditions um, uh, are often uh, provide very wise ways to check that. But I want to go even further. I think that uh, religion, family, and nation are their own kind of separation of powers. Right. I think one of the 
We live in a society of increasingly atomized individuals, and families have become very much weakened and broken. But the you know the dinner table for an intact family that's got a strong sense of its own self is sacrosanct. And as educators, you know, uh, educational administrators are discovering, parents can get very angry if they feel that the state is usurping their role as the primary educators of their children. And that's a good thing, uh, that pushback. But that's not something that's designed into it. We have democratic accountability that allows us to toss out school board members. But what's really going on here is the fact that you have a very powerful devotion, which is the devotion of a parent to the future of his child. And that, oof, will will be unto the politician that gets in the way of that. Um, And then conversely, as we know, so then then we've got Thomas More, uh, you know, to be to the king a a faithful servant, but to God even more so. So Religion is a tremendous check on state power. Uh, and then also national patriotism itself is a it lures it brings us out of our family Spanishness. Um, so anyway, I think that if you have a society that's rich ecosystem of loves, will actually be a society that's less susceptible to these kind of totalitarian pressures than a society that everything's been thinned out. It's it's um I agree with that wholeheartedly. As I was reading your book, I was thinking. I would have read this differently in 2019 than I do now um, with everything that's happened in the last two years, particularly related to the pandemic and the um, reactions to the pandemic, especially governmental reactions and uh, uh, just sort of elite reactions to the pandemic um, have made me, it, it showed to me that um, we might want to group everybody in as a neoliberal, but there are significant, it's like, we're all, mam- you know, it's like dogs and men are mammals. So they're really the same in certain ways. But in fact, they're very different in other ways. Um, those differences seem to really have been uh, salient uh, in the last couple of years. So I, I wondered if, um, I, in other words, I'm less impressed by sort of grouping everybody together as a neoliberal and, it's, you know, um, sort of just giving us freedom can't without it really meaning anything um, uh, at a substantive level. Do you have a, any similar um, kind of like, boy, I would write this differently now, post-pandemic? Um, like, in other words, I think of Hayek as someone who is still tied to and has some reverence for the sort of liberal traditions that you just said were wise, that help us uh, sort of direct our loves through sort of um, um, uh, uh, make them sort of live, you know, make them active uh, in the world in a way that sort of technocratic management from the top doesn't, sort of the Popperian tradition. Do you... You getting my drift here? Do you think there's anything to it? Yeah, would I write it differently? The pandemic certainly uh, it certainly exposed uh, that Thomas Hobbes is presiding presence uh, by not John Locke. In other words, we'll, we'll really do anything not to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that regard, yeah, yeah, and then eventually, especially among religious folks, you know, where there's initially the churches conform and then there was fairly quickly a realization that, well, wait a minute, uh, there, there are these other goods besides health, physical health, spiritual health being, being that. And I think that, you know, we can, we can probably um, credit 
Vladimir Putin for putting an end to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> you know, alas, these are these are these are fundamental questions about you know what what should we use our very not infinite but certainly estimable power as a nation to try to accomplish in the world, and um, uh, the fighting the pandemic became less grievous than this question about how we're going to live as a, as a, as a people. Um, and I think that was certainly true after the George Floyd, right? People were in the streets and it was, it, it was a kind of direct demonstration that people care more about some things than right. than a physical survival. Indeed. But our elite, our technocratic elites, I think are the most deracinated sector of our society. And so the, they're the most, they're the most thoroughly socialized by the gods of weakening. And so um, in, in, in that regard, you know, last, I think, I, I already thought that. I think in the book I, I talk about how our problems are with a dysfunctional elite, not with ordinary people in our society um, that are going to insist on this post-war consensus long after it's rele- relevant to the problems we actually face. In fact, it's increasingly the source of our problems. Right. So you write near the end of the book, I think it's in the last chapter, um, that we need to, quote, develop a language of love and a vision of the we that befits our dignity and appeals to our reason as well as our hearts. What did you have in mind when you were, if you can recall, or what would you have in mind now when you hear that statement read back to you uh, as far as what that really means? Yeah, you know, uh, again, I'll go back to the platonic dialogues. Socrates, the, you know, he often ends with myth, not syllogisms. Right. I mean, yep. uh, John Henry Newman is very clear that strict reason, as he calls it, can tear down, but it cannot build up. And I think John Henry Newman was, uh, was one of the great Platonists of the 19th century in that regard. Um, and, and so in education, we need to certainly undergo the kind of critical reflection necessary to disabuse ourselves of superficial um, beliefs. And the most dangerous beliefs are not falsehoods, but rather half-truths. Uh, falsehoods are hard to sustain. Right. Half-truths, we can go a long, long way with half-truths and do a lot of damage. So we certainly need to purify those, and, but with, with in a pedagogy that's willing to take the risk of elevating our souls and romancing us with a vision of the whole, um, or at least some vision of something higher um, than than our half truths. Uh, and then, you know, I think I tell the story about my church in Omaha, which is a half black, half white church, and seeing Tuskegee Airmen and the black church member who organized the whole thing. Who was, I mean, at that point, it was the 1990s. Certainly old enough to have grown up under Jim Crow. Uh, who's retired, said, uh, was weeping uh, about how could we have treated uh, Tuskegee Airmen like that? It was a powerful moment. It made me realize, like, wow, he had something that I think um, people want to feel. Right. Right. And the we. They don't want, as Americans, to be, to be, cabined into their little identity group. They actually want to be part of 
larger project. Um, and, you know, I think my experience in the United States is that uh, uh, most ordinary people are very proud. They're not stupid. They, they know that the country's got lots of warts and they have their resentments. Uh, but they're uh, but they're proud, just as as people are. Lithuanians are proud, and Poles are proud, Ethiopians are proud, um, and, and this is a good thing, I think, and it's something to be encouraged. And we as Americans are in a unique position where we're being having the illusion that we're a universal nation is part of actually who we are. Right, it's part of our tradition. Right, right. So we have to both. My point about um, the Socratic purification, we have to both recognize that that's um, a half-truth and not, not really full truth. But at the same time, because it's a half-truth, mm-hmm. we have to try to find a way to um, to do justice to the half part of, of that truth. Amen. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to close than with that. So I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, Rusty uh, Reno, the book is uh, which is now out in paperback, which I didn't even know. So I'm glad that you have that in front of you, uh, Rusty. Uh, Return of the Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. And if you want to read uh, uh, Rusty online, thefirstthings.com, uh, and many other people. Uh, it's a great website as well as a great print magazine. So thank you for being uh, on the show today, Rusty. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.